0: Yeah, I'd suggest that you keep your Bible open, it's 23 verses after all, and I won't be able to hit each and every single one of them, but uh, if you have that open, you can look at it. that would help you. Peter forgot he had a key, he forgot he had a key, which is kind of a, a trope in a lot of uh, movies and TV shows, you know, the kind of trope I'm talking about. Um, in the Lego movie, Scott gave me this illustration, he's a, he's a young father, but uh, Emmett, in, in the Lego movie, had this uh, red block on, on his back. like a, It looked like a Lego, and they didn't realize the whole time that it was the, the glue cap that would save Bricksburg. Yes, the piece de resistance. Is exa- yeah, exactly what it was. Uh, Dorothy had the ruby slippers. She could have gone back to Kansas at any point. Probably knowing Kansas, she just didn't want to go back the whole time. But... Uh, <laughs> I love Kansas. What are you talking about? I, oh, no, I love Kansas. Um, she, the whole time she could, she could have just clicked her heels together. It was right there. You, you get the, the idea, right? You've seen this a hundred times in different movies and different stories. Well, Peter had a key that he could have been using, and he had used it, but I think he just kept forgetting that he had the key. You know the key I'm talking about? Look at this passage in Matthew, Matthew 16. This is after Peter's made that profession of of faith in Christ. You are the Christ, you are the Son of God. And Jesus says to him, And I tell you, you are Peter, and on this rock I will build my church, and the gates of hell shall not prevail against it. I will give you the keys of the kingdom of heaven. Whatever you bind on earth shall be bound in heaven. Whatever you loose on earth shall be loosed in heaven. And what we see in the book of Acts is a playing out of that promise. It's, It's a lot of other things as well. But when you look at those times where the gospel crosses a significant barrier, if you would think of it as a, a wall with a door that had to be opened, who is it that's there opening the door each time? It's Peter. When it, when you say, well, Philip took the gospel to the Samaritans. Yes, he did, but then Peter had to follow. Peter had to go and, and pray for them that they receive the Holy Spirit. And what we're going to see today is, is that as it crosses that, that boundary, to the Gentiles that Peter will be there as well using the key which he's been given. Now what was the key, what was the special key that Peter had? It was the gospel. It was the gospel. He was the one that was supposed to use it as it crossed those two major boundaries. The second boundary is harder than the first. The first boundary going to the Samaritans, you'll recall Jews and Samaritans did not jihad. They did not get along well at all. And yet crossing that boundary was nothing compared to actually going into the Gentile uh, world. And God was going to have to work on Peter pretty hard to get him to remember about this key. The idea today is this, Christian, you too have the gospel key, so use it. (laughs) And I preach to myself on this. I don't want to be up here sounding like I, I get this right every day and and that I always remember that I have that or remember I'm supposed to be using it. But man, you got a key. You should, you should use the thing. There's two ways that God prepares for that key to be used. One, he prepares people to receive it. And then he prepares us to use it. So the first one, he prepares people for its use. And by that, we mean the people that are on the receiving end that need to be brought into the kingdom of God. The guy before us today is named Cornelius. 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 Luke tells us that um, Cornelius was in Caesarea. I know you want to know about Caesarea. You've been like dying to ask, what, tell me about Caesarea. What do you know about Caesarea? Well, here's what I know about Caesarea. It was still actually technically within the boundaries of the Holy Land. Even though it was a Gentile enclave, it was still technically within the boundaries of what was ancient Israel. In fact, Herod the Great had built the city of Caesarea and created a port where there hadn't been one. Joppa had been the big seaport you remember Joppa um, that's where Peter is in fact when we pick this up but Caesarea had had sort of exceeded it it became the it really it became the power base where the Roman Empire had its its main um, governmental functions you say well weren't they in Jerusalem yeah they were they were in Jerusalem but Caesarea was really the power base it's like if the Chinese end up c- conquering America God forbid, but that kind of looks like it might happen at some point. Um, they might leave us Washington D.C. as kind of a figurehead. You know, all the collaborators can sort of rule America under the Vichy uh, Americans in in D.C. But you know, the the Chinese they might they might put their power base at New York. That that was Caesarea. anyway. That was a lot of explanation for very little payoff. But um. The, <laughs> it's interesting stuff, right, it's color, it's background, okay, that's just stuff you have to know, well, there were a lot of Gentiles there, there were a lot of, Romans. in fact, there were more Romans there than there were Jews, and we have this guy, Cornelius, who is a Roman centurion, he was part of the Italian cohort, you remember that, that old Italian cohort, um, We don't know who the Italian cohort was, but we do know that a cohort was about 600 Roman soldiers, so there would have been six centurions within a cohort. This uh, Cornelius was one of them, but he's different than the rest. It's like that picture. One of these is different than the rest. What's different about Cornelius? He is attracted to the God of the Jews. That makes him a very, very strange Roman. Indeed, it says he was a devout man who feared God with all his household, gave alms generously to the people and prayed continually to God. So he, here he is, this, this Roman, just steeped in, in, in all things Rome, and, and yet he has a profound interest in the God of the Jews. He's not a convert. He would be called a Jew if he had converted to Judaism. He was not Jewish. He probably wasn't even technically a member of the so-called God-fearers, that was a designation if people were like thinking about converting to Judaism and they'd been attracted to it for a while they would be called a God fearer now he feared God but whether he was technically one of those whether he would taken it that far we don't know but he prayed to God he sought God he gave money to the poor he was a Gentile drawn through the scriptures away from this idea of, of multiple gods He's, he's probably no longer a person who believes in a pantheon of gods. He's, he's somehow God got him to Israel and it opens his mind to the idea of monotheism and he starts praying to that God. Think for a moment of all the things that had to fall into place for God to prepare this guy for that, to open that the odds against a Roman centurion being a seeker of God and being interested in the God of the Jews was, was just Astronomical. Well, it says, about the ninth hour of the day, he saw clearly in a vision an angel of God come in and say to him, Cornelius, ninth hour of the day. Do you remember what the ninth hour of the day was? Probably not, right? 3 p.m. It's 3 p.m., which was a common time for Jewish prayer. So that does tell us even a little bit more. Like he is really, really letting himself be influenced by Judaism, even when it comes down to that time of prayer. An angel appears to him and says, Cornelius, and when the angel calls his name, it fills him with terror. Think about that for a minute. A Roman centurion. For, a Roman centurion was a guy who came up through the ranks, he was the highest commissioned. Off, a non commissioned officer. If, you, if you're familiar with the military, you'll understand that. You can only go so high if you're not a commissioned officer. And Centurion was, he was that guy. He'd come up just as a grunt. He had been in war. He had proven himself in battle. He showed his capacity and ability to, to be liked and loved by his men and to be followed and so on and so forth. And this guy, who's faced death, is frightened at the appearance of the angel. Tells you something about angels, doesn't it? Have you ever noticed that in Scripture, that angels always just scare the pants off of people? I've probably told you this story before, but I remember one time as a child growing up in the haunted house that I grew up in. Um, perfect for Halloween. Um, but <laughs> one night it was dark in my bedroom, as it always was. We couldn't afford nightlights back then. It was poor times, kids. And... Um, lying line there, and I'd heard the story about an angel, I don't know if it was on TV or if I'd, it was when I read my Bible, I, I, could, I had to be in grade school, so I started praying, God, let me see an angel, just, I would love to just, just to have an angel appear to me, God, let me see, and then I, for a moment, it, I got the imagina- imagination going, and I thought about what it would be like for an angel to appear out of nowhere in the middle of my room, and I remember turning on a dime and going, oh, whoa, 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 no, 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 Sorry about that, strike that prayer, didn't mean that, do not, do not show me an angel, God, I was, do not send an angel, they're scary. And he stared at him in terror and said, what is it, Lord? And he said to him, your prayers and your alms have ascended as a memorial to God. So even though he's terrorized by the sight of this glorious being there standing and talking to him, at the same time, there had to be a window of hope that was awaking in him because if you're a centurion and you start to hear about the god of the uh, of the old testament you find out pretty quickly this god of the old testament has a real soft spot in his heart for these people called the Jews and not necessarily the same opinion about gentiles would he have even i'm sure that as he was praying to this god he had to be thinking quite often will this god loves someone who's an uncircumcised Gentile. And now he has this angel appearing to telling him that, yeah, in effect, God has listened and heard his prayers. Then he receives instructions, which had to feel good. If you're a soldier, what's the one part of your life you count on? Orders, right? Instructions. People order you around. You have people under you that you get to order around. And so the angel orders them around. He says, and now send men to Joppa. I can do that and bring one Simon, who's called Peter, who's lodging with one Simon, a tanner, so there's Simon Peter and Simon a tanner, whose house is by the sea. How prepared is, is Cornelius to receive this good news? He's acquainted with the God of the Bible. He has sought this God. He has, he has prayed. He's served him, so to speak, by giving alms to the poor. I mean, it's from a distance. He's not going up to the temple or something like that. But now a messenger of God tells him that God has recognized this, has recognized his hunger for him, his prayers, his almsgiving, and note the angel says to him at this point, you know what, and you're just fine the way you are. God just loves you and have a good day. Did did you read that, Ryan, when you were reading through that? Did you cover that? No, he doesn't say that. Now, that's the part that we need to see. He doesn't say, e- you know, you've tried so hard, and that's really all I'm looking for as the God of the universe is that you try, put in an effort, you put in an effort, we're good. Does not say that. There's something he still needs to do, and that is he needs to send his servants, which he does, and a soldier who's also devout to go and bring Peter. Cornelius has not yet heard the gospel, and he needs to hear the gospel. Why didn't the angel share the gospel with him? Isn't that the million dollar question? Why just not cut straight to the, why, why not cut out the middle man and just have the, do you know that the first evangelist in the New Testament was an angel? Yeah, we're, we're coming up on that season before long. You can feel the weather getting colder coming up on Advent. The angel that appeared to the shepherds, it literally says he evangelized them in the Greek. Yeah, to share the gospel. He told them the good news of great joy to all people. So the first, first evangelist was an angel. Why didn't he just evangelize him? But instead, what he's doing is he's assisting in God's preparation of the groundwork that that key could be used by Peter. You know, there are a lot of modern stories of how God has people ready to hear the gospel. Have you heard some of those? Where people share the gospel and there's just some incredible backstory of how the person got to be right then and there at that point and ready to hear it? Yeah? No? There was one I heard recently, a guy, uh, he's an author by the name of Hugh Ross. How many have heard of Hugh Ross? He's a writer, he's a scientist, he's a Christian. Yeah, and he's written a book recently about evangelism, but he was going door-to-door doing evangelism, which that in itself surprised me. You know, he's kind of just a big, egg-headed, educated guy, but uh, he's going door-to-door doing evangelism. I may have shared this with you before, but he's with another guy, and they came to this gate in front of this massive, expensive home uh, somewhere in California. I don't know exactly where, but it was a gated house, and you couldn't even see the house from the gate. There was nothing on the gate. They didn't see any signs or in anything there. And, uh, and they looked, and there was a German shepherd standing behind the gate. And they said, oh, hi, boy. And the, and the German shepherd's like, okay, follow me. And they're like, okay, let's follow the dog. And they followed the dog, and they went to the door, and they knocked on the door. And the people are like, well, did you not see the sign on the gate? No, was there a sign on the gate? Yeah, it says, do not enter. The dog will kill you. And, and they're like, well, the dog was fine never barked it just led us to the door they're like okay that's really spooky come on in go ahead and they're like what do you mean go ahead and they're like well you came to tell us something about God right and they're like yeah <laughs> and they said well, why how did you know that and they said well we've just been going through a really hard time as a family and we don't know who God is but we just decided to get together and pray that someone would come and tell us about God and they shared the gospel. And when they left, they looked at the gate, and there were all kinds of signs about this, this, this ferocious dog that they you know, dare not enter. Anyway, there's stories like that, and you get kind of a little goosebump feeling when you hear stories like that. I believe that for every story like that, there are tens of thousands where there's nothing quite like that that you can point to and say God had it ready. But what we know from the scripture is that God has people ready And we are the ones that are supposed to be using the key. The failure isn't on God's part to have people ready. The failure, if you want to put it in those terms, is that we're not using the key. But people, people have been made ready. Secondly, he prepares us. Think about how he prepared Peter. First of all, he prepared Peter by the word. By his word uh, to understand this we have to consider how daunting it is for a jewish person to cross into the, this, this would have been very very difficult for peter to have done and yet consider how many words of christ he had heard that should have told him to be ready for this think about just the one that we read earlier about the keys you know that this was this was his responsibility to go open these doors there was another story about a centurion do you remember the one who had a servant that was sick And he called for Jesus, and he says, just just say the word, and it'll be done. And Jesus said, wow, that's incredible. This guy has such good, incredible faith. And then he said, I tell you, many will come from east and west and recline at table with Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob in the kingdom of heaven. Peter was right on hand and heard that. There was another incident in the Gospel of John where some Greeks want to come and talk to Jesus. Now, if you're reading especially if John's like the first book in the Bible you read, you may be offended by this the first time you read it because it talked about these Greeks, non-Jews, wanting to talk to Jesus. Jesus was a Jew. Jesus' ministry was to the Jews. And, and this, these Greeks come and Jesus is like, nope, not gonna talk to them. Whoa, Jesus isn't gonna talk to these non-Jews? And then immediately he says, but if I be lifted up, I will draw all men to me. Meaning not just Jews, but all men of every race and tribe and tongue. Even in the book of Acts, Acts 1-8. Again, to, to Peter that wasn't a book. That was just his life and what Jesus had told him. And in Acts 1.8, he said, Stay in Jerusalem till the Holy Spirit comes upon you, then you're going to be my witnesses. Where? Jerusalem, Judea, Samaria, ends of the earth. The word of God had him ready, but was he ready? Class, was he really ready? You think Peter was ready? Not quite. He, he had the word of and, and and the same for us. We have the word of God. We ought to know. We ought to be ready. But it also took something else. He needed providence, God's providence. What is God's providence? Sounds like a big word. Sounds like one of those big technical jargony theology kinds of words. And it is, it is, but it's a good word. You should know the word providence. Today, you will leave here with nothing. If, if nothing else, you will leave here with a definition in your mind of what God's providence is. It, it, providence fits in with the sovereignty of God. When we talk about the sovereignty of God, we mean God's rule and right to rule over all things that he made. So whatever God made, he has a right to rule, correct? Now, what has God made? Everything. So God is sovereign over all things. Providence is the working out of his sovereignty. It's the use of his right to rule the, the world. And so when you think about the orbit of planets, you think about the, the seasons as they change, you think about nations that, that, are, that are brought up and then taken down, Isaiah chapter 40, all the way down to little things like how the lot falls. A lot is like dice so how the, how the dice ends up being rolled. The hairs on your head, the, the lilies of the field, the birds of the air. Are you getting the picture? Romans eight twenty eight. all things work together for the good of those who love the Lord and are called according to his purpose, yes? So that's all, that's God's work, that's his providence. And look at how providentially this story is arranged. Peter just happened to be at a place called Lydda. Remember Lydda, Aeneas, and he heals Aeneas. Well, that makes some, you know, people hear and talk about it. And then the people in Joppa hear, oh, Peter's down in, in Lydda. And that's not too far away. And Tabitha just died. So it just so happens she died. So they just happened to go down and get him. He just happened to come up and just happened to raise her from the dead. And Joppa just happened to be not that far actually from Caesarea. God had Peter in that house of that man by the name of Simon who was a tanner. And by the way... Speaking of tanners, tanner was not considered a pure op, uh, occupation for, for Jews. I don't think it was forbidden for them to go into it, but every time you touched a dead body, whether it be a human dead body or an animal's dead carcass, you were unclean. You were ritually unclean to go to the temple for a certain number of hours and days and whatnot. I don't remember the exact amount, but um, you were ritually unclean. Well, if you're a tanner, you're touching a dead body every day, aren't you? So it was, very, it was a very unclean thing, but even in the providence of God, I think being at, at that place was starting to unlock some things in Peter and, and, and giving him a higher sort of threshold, a higher tolerance. Do you see how the outward events of timing, cities, places, are all constellating in a way with this decision to go and preach to Cornelius? It made it more likely God didn't send Peter directly from Jerusalem. Can you imagine how hard that would have been if Peter had just been ensconced in Jerusalem, that Jewish enclave that, you know, the the, the best place in all the world for a Jew to be and surrounded by nothing but Judaism and being in the temple. If God had said, okay, leave here and go to Caesarea. I want you to go share the gospel, use the gospel key with Gentiles. Now, I think Peter would have done it, but how much harder would that have been? All of this preparation has been, been, been placed there to get Peter ready. Also, something else, and this is kind of something that you might miss, but I th- tell me if, this, if you don't think this played into having Peter ready for it. Do you remember ever hearing about Joppa in the Old Testament? It, it figures in in a particular story. You see, there was this prophet. He was a very reluctant prophet, And um, God had told him he was supposed to go to these Gentiles, yeah, Gentiles, in a city called Nineveh, and this prophet of God's like, I don't want to go share, he didn't say this, but in his heart, he's like, I don't want these Gentiles to get saved, I don't want them to repent and not be taken out by God's judgment, so he was in a place called um, Joppa, (laughs) and he jumped on a ship to go to Tarshish, ended up swallowed by a fish, you may know the rest of the story, but... Peter is at Joppa when God says, I want you to go to the home of this Gentile. Don't you you think that helped? Wouldn't that have have just like, if you're Peter, you're going, yeah, I don't want to get swallowed by a fish. I think I'm going to go. But then there's the way in which God prepared him by prayerful communion. Peter's staying there on the coast. He's soaking up the salt air. How beautiful must that have been? Have you ever been on the Mediterranean? How many have been on the Mediterranean? Uh, okay, and, and the few that don't want to admit it, okay, you can, you can it's okay. It's, a be- it's beautiful. You can imagine, he, and he's there. Yes, it's, it, 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 it's a, a, a tannery, so that's maybe not the best thing in the world, but you can picture him. He's going up uh, to, to pray, which he'd sen- seen Jesus do many times. There's this, this wonderful, you know, scent of, uh, of good Jewish cooking, kosher food, wafting up into the air, mixed together with the hmm, aroma, shall we say, of a tannery. (laughs) Not a good smell. Uh, A tannery would not be, it might, I mean, it might smell fine in today's, although I doubt it. It It probably smells about like a rendering plant. How many have ever been past a rendering plant? Come on, people from Kansas. Yes, yes. Isn't that a wonderful smell? Debbie didn't live too far from a rendering plant. Like, you couldn't smell it from her house, but like, if you go for a little drive and all of a sudden it's like, oh, man. So he's getting all this smell of food mixed with the smell of, uh, yeah, other things. And uh, is it any wonder that he takes the stairs? There would have been a stairs on the outside of the house up to that flat roof and he, and he sits down and he falls into that, that pattern that he'd seen Jesus do so often, which was to get away and pray. And as he's praying, as he's looking out onto the Mediterranean, probably looking out onto ships with their sails and so forth, he falls into a trance. Could have been low blood sugar, don't you think? Maybe they would instigate that. <laughs> anyway, it says, and, and he saw the heavens opened and something like a great sheet descending, being let down by its four corners upon the earth. So do you get the picture of that? Uh, literally, the, the word is, is that, uh, the same word that's used of sailcloth. So it's in the shape of a, what, rectangle or a square, whatever it takes. There's four corners, that's what we know. And it looks almost like there's some invisible beings, you know, holding each corner, and they're, and they're, and they're just descending together, so far so good. Ooh, who doesn't want to see a vision from heaven, am I right? But then it becomes troubling because as, it, as it's coming down all, the, all at once, it tells us in verse 12 that there's all kinds of animals on this sheet, and not just the good kind. If you if you know what I'm saying, not just the clean animals, but also those which were considered unclean. It even mentions reptiles. Oh, reptiles. See, un, under Jewish law, alligator tail was not on the menu. If you if you're into you know if you're into some good Cajun alligator tail, uh, not on the menu. In fact, the only thing on the menu for a good Jewish person in terms of land animals were animals that what? Do you, do you remember? They had to do. Two things had to be true. one was they had to chew the cud. Yeah. The other thing was they had to have a split foot hoof. Yes, I heard somebody say it. Yeah. And if that wasn't the case, if those things, two things didn't come together, they weren't supposed to eat it. They weren't supposed to be be eating squirrel. You know, any of the paws are out. You know, bunnies, squirrels. You know, dogs. They're all off the menu. Not part. Not part of it. Alligator. Not on the menu. Bacon not on the menu not on the menu sad right and then there came a voice to him rise peter kill and eat but peter said by no means lord for i have never eaten anything that is common or unclean and the voice comes to him again a second time what god has made made clean do not call common now look peter was not a super fastidious jew when it came to how he did things the Pharisees were much further along in how they observed kosher, so they had to wash their hands between meals and so forth, get a good hygiene and so forth. They didn't even do, the, Jesus' disciples didn't even observe those particular rules. But he would not have eaten an unclean animal. That was just universally true of, of the Jewish people, that there were those things which they could eat and those things which they couldn't, and he had never eaten anything that was common. And yet God says to him what God has made clean do not call common. So what do you think? Is this freedom to eat bacon, is that what this passage is about? Yes <laughs> and no. Yes and no. It's a firm yes and no. I mean, yes, on, on the one hand, uh, there are, this and other passages in the New Testament make it clear that the dietary restrictions of the Old Testament are no longer binding on the conscience of a believer. They've been fulfilled in Christ. Has bacon become healthy? What, okay. Bacon is life. Because if you're starving and you've got nothing else to eat, bacon will keep you alive. So bacon is life. Should you eat tons of bacon... No, I, 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 know, I know who to look to on some of this. probably shouldn't eat tons of bacon. You know, if you've got other choices, you probably shouldn't. But Paul, you know, Paul says that we can eat things as long as we do so with thanksgiving. He says in 1 in, uh, Timothy, he says, For everything created by God is good. Nothing to, is to be rejected if it is received with thanksgiving. So my policy is I am super thankful for bacon. Like, that's easy. Like, thank you, Lord, for this bacon that I'm about to receive. Having said that, God is not really concerned here, I think, with dietary considerations. This is a vision, remember. There are no literal physical animals on a literal physical sheet coming down from heaven. No, Peter did not, in obedience to the vision, get up and go kill something and eat it. That's not what the passage is about. It's a teaching moment. It's getting Peter ready so that he will not consider the Gentiles to be unclean. If they'd come and he hadn't had this vision, and, they, and you know, and he'd realized the, oh, just, they're just pure Gentiles, and they want me to go and stay at a Gentile home. He probably would have said, he probably would have said, "Thank you, no, thank you, sorry, not sorry." Uh, he probably wouldn't have done it. Peter sought, sought God on the top of that roof that day, and God answered by preparing him in a deeper way for what God was about to do, which was have Peter use the key. Don't lose track of the, don't lose that key. The key today of the sermon is the key that we, not, that, that we use it, that we use it. And God was preparing it. One last way that God prepared him and prepares us. Uh, so Peter's perplexed by this vision. He, he probably can hear the, the people arriving down below. It's all kind of taking place kind of simultaneously. He's up on the roof. He's just had the vision. They're at the gate. Verse 18, they're down there. He can hear something. Uh, then verse 19, the Holy Spirit speaks to him. It says, and while Peter was pondering the vision, the Spirit said to him, behold, three men are looking for you. He goes down, he identifies himself, and what he learns is what we already know. They basically tell him the part of the story that we know the, already. It says, and they said, Cornelius, yep, we got that, a centurion, heard that, an upright and God-fearing man who is well-spoken of by the whole Jewish nation was directed by a holy angel to send to you to come to his house and to hear what you have to say. This is important stuff. This, we, we see how God has laid it out prepared it, gotten Peter ready for this moment. And we know Peter's gonna say yes. Peter's gonna, Peter's gonna go with them. But one, one thing happens there. And that is, that we're told in verse 23, that he invites them in. They obviously stay the night because they take off the next day. So Peter, a Jew, takes in these three Gentiles meal was being prepared when he went up on the roof so I assume that they probably dined together at that moment which was a no-no Jews and Gentiles were not supposed to eat together they may have had another evening meal they got up the next morning they would have had something to eat they would have traveled together and and what I see happening there is proximity proximity the die was cast Peter had the word he had had God's providence he had that prayer time together but now he actually gets elbow to elbow with a real live Gentile. Yeah? <laughs> wow. Have, you, have you, Are there people, racial groups, that you've not spent too much time with and you'd feel like, oh, I don't know. I don't know if I... I don't know if I could talk to somebody from Saudi Arabia or whatever it would be. You might think, ah, oh, I just wouldn't know what to say. You know, historically, when people are in very distinct, you know, groups and they don't get outside of those, they have all, sometimes they have all kinds of ideas about people of other ethnic groups and, and, and races and so forth. And, uh, and what God has to do a lot of times is get us, get us next to them, get us in that neighborhood with them. Put them, you know, as our neighbor on our right, our left hand, and then when we start connecting, all of a sudden we see, well, they're just people like, like I am, and they need the gospel too, and that's, I think that's what's happening here. Uh, Rosaria Butterfield wrote a book that's quite good if you ever see it. It's called The Gospel Comes with a House Key, and it's all about the ministry of Hospitality. But that's another way that God can prepare you to use the key. You know, when it's just theoretical, like, yeah, I should probably share the gospel with someone, it kind of feels remote. But then when God, when God puts you in a scenario where you're right next to someone, however that might be, when he puts you into that connection, if you're opening your home, how much better to have people come in, people that don't know the Lord, and how much easier does that then become to really be ready to share the gospel? All right, so what what prepares you? Do you see the four things that should prepare you? Because we're all bad. Well, I won't say we're all bad at this. Some of us are better than others. I just got a text this morning that one of our guys up at Moody, um, Pey- uh, Peyton's brother, actually, Garrett, is up at Moody. And um, they went out uh, last night. And I don't do. You, do you know, was it a like a, a, a bar or something that they went to to do that? I don't know. Some, Someplace where, there, where it was a gay community, okay? And they went there to share the gospel. And, uh, and, and God love them, you know? I mean, they, 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 they took a challenge and went and some good things happened. I don't know that anybody um, was brought into the kingdom of God. But, you know, that, that took boldness. And we need, we, we need more of that. Here's how God is, has prepared you. First of all, he's prepared you by the word of God. There is no question that we are to be using the key of the gospel, it's been given to us for that very reason, that we are to give an account for the hope that is in our heart to anyone that we have the chance to share with. And we know that God prepares people to hear. Sometimes it might, might be absolutely miraculous. Sometimes you may have a German shepherd leading you to the front door. Other days, the German shepherd might take your leg off. It's just really hard to know, but, but God is and, and you know, then maybe you meet somebody at the emergency room and you get to share the gospel, whatever the case may be. Providence, God, God has his providential ways of making people ready to hear, and, and, and the, the element of prayer. Not that we would have visions, I'm not saying that every time you wanna pray that God's gonna give you a vision, but I believe that when we're praying for opportunities to share the gospel that we are so much more ready then to actually do it. And if we are willing and if we are open to it, we can even have an open-door policy with our neighbors and, and others so that we come into proximity. It's in proximity to people that we start to have burdens to actually share with them. We've got a key. Is anybody not convinced of that? I could preach a couple more minutes if you want me to, but as everybody got... We, we have a key. <laughs> no, no, don't. We've got, all right. <laughs> so you got the point. We have a key. We just need to put it to use. It's like in a video game. Have you ever played a video game and um, just not caught on to a part of the game that makes it a whole lot easier? Imagine you played Legend of Zelda and you got all the way through Legend of Zelda and you, d- you didn't realize that if you took the sword and bashed these baskets along the way, you'd be getting paid the whole time. And they're like, oh, you, what? <laughs> oh, man, we have a key, it's there, it's good, it opens the door to the kingdom of God. It it allows people to cross from death into life, to be brought into that, that relationship of knowing Jesus Christ. Think about the privilege that you know Jesus today. You know him, you are in him, he is in you, you have the hope of heaven, eternity with him, and there are people that are on the outside. How do they get in? How do they cross in? Are they going to have to wait for an angel to show up and share the gospel? No, oh, God's, God's prepared you, and God's prepared them. And if you're one of those people today, if you're sitting here listening to this, then I want to open that door as wide as I can to you and just tell you it's, it's, it, the doorway is Christ The doorway is the gospel of Jesus Christ. He came into the world to save sinners like you and like me, and if you will hear that good news and you desire it the way Cornelius did, Cornelius was like, man, I I want that good news to be shared with me. If, If you're in that position, you hear the good news, the door is open, repent, believe in the Lord Jesus Christ, and you will not only be saved, but you will enter into a relationship with the eternal God through his son, having the Holy Spirit come to dwell in you. Come, come into his kingdom today. Let's pray. Lord, it is a daunting task to open a doorway between Jews and Gentiles, and uh, we thank you that Peter, after much work, um, was willing to do that, and I pray, Lord, that we would be willing. Um, help us to be more in your word. Help us, Lord, to be more in prayer so that we might see the way providentially you have, have put people in our path. Lord, help us to use that proximity to other people that, that we could connect with them and through those connections be able to share the gospel, to use that gospel key. And we pray, Lord, that you would use it even now in the heart of someone that may be far from you, but they hear the gospel right now and and they want what the gospel provides. I pray, Lord, that such a one would come into your kingdom and find salvation and find that relationship to you. We ask it in your name, amen.